Lord, we come to you and we are so aware that we, that we need your help to understand your word. Help us, Lord, now as it's preached. Help the preaching, help the hearing. Lord, may we hear you speak to us, each one of us. Encourage us, challenge us, strengthen us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt as though you didn't really belong somewhere? That you weren't really qualified for being where you were or you weren't really supposed to be in the group that you're in? You might be doing an evening class and not realize that the prerequisite for doing the class is that you're meant to have done some other studies before and you're coming in just fresh, you know nothing and everybody else seems to know so much more. Or you come to church sometimes and you feel everybody else seems so holy and I'm aware of my own sin. I don't really feel as though I belong here. Do you know the story of Pygmalion? Um, I'm not a great reader. I didn't read the book, but I've seen the film. (laughs) It was made into a film called My Fair Lady, which starred Audrey Hepburn and, and Rex Harrison. Audrey Hepburn played the role of Eliza Doolittle, who was a Cockney girl, Cockney woman in London, trying to make a bit of money selling flowers. And she just wanted to be a bit better off. She was just scrimping and saving, just trying to make ends meet. But Professor Henry Higgins was much more well off, and he thought that he could do much more with this young woman. He boasted he could transform her so she could be passed off as a lady. He could change her from being a Cockney girl with a very rough accent into being able to speak and being able to have such poise and elegance that she would even be mistaken for being possibly even royalty. She just wanted a few more coppers in her pocket, but the professor began a process of elocution and education with her. And he was boasting that he could take her to one of the finest balls in London and pass her off as a lady. She just wanted to be a bit better off, but he wanted to do something more than just give her a few coppers. He wanted to transform her completely. In the end, if you know the the film, if you've seen the film, she becomes so transformed that he falls in love with her and they get married. The reason I mention that story is that many believers have the impression that when they become Christians, they are essentially the same person as they were before, but just given a ticket to get into heaven. Somewhere where they might feel as though they don't really belong. They're there, but maybe they don't really deserve to be there like everybody else. Many Christians, I know from talking to people, and I know this is something that keeps coming up over and over again, we're so aware of our sinfulness that we, that we doubt our relationship with God. We think we're, we're a bit like maybe Cinderella and it's about to chime midnight and the carriage will turn back into a pumpkin. Our gear will turn back into our shabby clothes and we'll be seen for who we really are. 
Sometimes we think that's, <clears throat> that's what we're like as Christians. People will find us out. If you think of, well, I would be really showing my age if I says, do you, know, do you remember upstairs, downstairs on the TV? <laughs> well, let's look at the modern version of it. Downtown Abbey. Sometimes when we think of ourselves before God, we, we think of ourselves a bit like Tom Branson. He used to be the car mechanic, the driver. And he used to eat with the servants downstairs. And all the, the, the aristocrats, they, they, they ate and dined upstairs. But he was able, through falling in love, getting married to one of the daughters, to be accepted by the family. And now he eats upstairs instead of downstairs. And that's what it's like for us when we come to, to faith in Christ. We, we are adopted into God's family. But sometimes we think, I know we're, we're sitting at God's table, but really we feel as though sometimes we should be downstairs. We, we, we don't really belong here. We feel like a bit of an imposter. Or sometimes... And going back to <clears throat> the film My Fair Lady, we think of Eliza Doolittle's father. He was the coal man, dressed in his working clothes, coal dust from head to foot. And he wouldn't be let into any posh place. But then he comes into a little money and he gets transformed. He's top hat and tails, waistcoat and the lot, and sings, I'm getting married in the morning. Uh, transformation. Sometimes we think that when we come to church, when we come into God's presence, we give the appearance of being like that, but really inside we feel like the coal man who's got grime and dirt all over. Sometimes we feel like a fake when it comes to coming into God's presence. But as believers, even though the enemy, even though the devil, who's called the accuser of the brethren, even though he may accuse us, even though we might feel like that sometimes, that's not who we are in Christ. And in this passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, we see a contrast between who we were and who we are, all because of God's grace, all because of his love for us. In our series of following Jesus, we're looking today at how we are new people in Christ. We're not just imposters. We are actually new people in Christ if we come to him in faith. Beforehand, God was angry with us, each one of us. And in our condition, we were spiritually dead. Paul starts this passage, once you are dead, because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Paul didn't say that once before you've placed your faith in Christ that you were bad and now you've become good. Somebody once said that Christ didn't come to make bad people good. 
he came to make spiritually dead people alive. It's not just about being a little bit bad needing to be a bit better. It's spiritually, we're flatlining. We don't have a pulse. And God needs to come. And through faith, it's like a defibrillator spiritually. We become alive. We get, we get a pulse. We become alive to God through faith in Christ. Some people have the approach that, well, we're all okay, sort of. We just need to be a little bit better. And as long as we're better than half of, half of the people, as long as we're in the top half of, of people, better than average, sure isn't that all that God wants? This idea that all you have to do is be better than the average is completely r- rubbish. It's nowhere in the Bible. God says to be perfect. His pass rate is 100%, 100.000%. If we've committed one sin, we're unworthy. And yet we sin. Well, everything we do is affected by sin. The reformers taught the, <clears throat> the doctrine of total depravity now sometimes that's mistaken sometimes that's mistaken to to be understood such that everything we do is totally evil as evil as it could ever be but no that's not the case there's a lot of relatively kind people there's a lot of good people in a sense in this world there's a lot of charitable work done but the doctrine of total depravity means that Totally everything that we do is depraved in some way or another. Depraved, depravity. It's an old-fashioned word which doesn't really sit with us as well these days. But basically what it's saying is that everything we do is in some way imperfect. Even if we're given to charity, we think pride gets up and think, I'm such a good person. People think really good of me. Or we think, yeah, th- that's my good work. That'll put me in God's good books. But we don't reckon that we're already in his bad books because of all the sinful things we've done. We are spiritually dead. And Christ came that we might be alive. And Paul says of the believers, you used to sin just like the rest of the world. Believers weren't any different we're all in the same boat and we mustn't have an air of superiority looking down on others. There's far too many Christians give the impression that they're condescending towards others. If Christians are like that, I just wonder, do they really understand the gospel? Because the gospel starts off by we were all like this. And nobody can look down their nose at anybody else. We ought to say, that's, that, that's where I was. That was me. I did those same things and worse. You followed the way of the world, the way of the devil. Paul says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. 
He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. When Paul talks about the devil and people obeying the devil, it's not as if they're looking to the devil as their leader and saluting him, listening to what he says and going out and doing it because he says it. That's not how it works. There's a few people who are Satanists, a very small number of people who are actively worshipping the devil and trying to do his work. But the vast majority of people are simply just trying to live their lives, but they just don't realise that they're like, they're like the children who are following the Pied Piper, mesmerised by his tune. People are mesmerised by, by sin. They're following in that pattern of sin that the devil brought into the world. He introduced sin and the world has fallen as a result. And people are going, the blind leading the blind. And they don't realize that they're just following that pattern that the devil set in in motion. They're following idols of pleasure, fulfillment and different things. They're following other religions as not as ways to try and get towards God. Other religions are ways to walk away from God. To try and fill that God-shaped hole in our lives with something that is not the real thing. The devil blinds people's eyes and they don't realize it. He wants to kill and destroy But Jesus has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. We were children of wrath. God was angry with us. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, God's wrath, as ESV puts it, just like everyone else. God is just. God is holy. And in his justice, he has to punish sin where he finds it. And he has to be angry at sin because sin is serious. And it's far worse than we think of it. We just see the top layer. We just see the surface layer. But sin, if God was to take his restraining hand away, the human heart is so sinful. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says? If, if God was to take his restraining hand away, then we would be like before the flood. Every intention of all the thoughts of all people was evil continually. And God is angry at such sin. Even though we don't sin as much as we could, That's because God is gracious. But our hearts are capable of it. And the sins that we do do are just a tiny reflections of the sins that we could do if God hadn't restrained us. So our sin is worse than we actually realize. And God's wrath is far more serious 
far more angry at sin because it is so bad than we could often understand. On the judgment day, he will judge and all who are outside of Christ will will face condemnation. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Jesus says in Matthew 25, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. The lake of fire wasn't created for us. It was created for the devil and the, that fallen angel and the, the other angels who followed him. But because he introduced sin, the devil introduced sin into our world, we, when we do like him, we get the same end result in eternity. There's going to be eternal condemnation for all who deserve it. Another way of seeing how seriously God takes sin is to see how much Jesus had to suffer on the cross as our substitute. The Father turned away from the Son. Jesus bore the anger of God for sin on the cross. An eternity of suffering for an innumerable number of people all compressed down onto those three hours when even the sun was blackened. Jesus didn't even have the, the warmth of the sun shining on him. When he didn't even understand, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was even denied the blessing of knowing that, yes, there will be good coming out of this for those three hours. He just suffered separation from the Father. We cannot understand what it is like. We cannot get our heads across around what happened on the cross. Jesus didn't simply suffer a physically awful death. He suffered separation from the Father, which we could not see just by looking. He looked like another person dying on a cross. But we could not see that what was going on there was an eternity of punishment being atoned for on the cross in the person of Jesus. Our sin is so serious that Jesus had to suffer the Father's punishment in our place so that we could go free. But now, God delights in you. That's how we were. And that's how everyone who is outside of Christ is. But now all that has changed. God has been merciful and has loved us so much. When Paul uses the word but, but now or but God, he's introducing something significant. He does that in a number of places throughout his letters. He has been describing our situation outside of Christ and now he describes the situation, the blessedness of what God has done for us. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much.
In John, John's Gospel, we're told, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. But now God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. God is not simply somebody who has to. Law demands, justice demands that sin is punished. If God were a hard-hearted God, he could say, brilliant, I got punishment coming up for all who deserve it. But judgment is his strange work. Judgment is something we're told that he has to do, but it's not what he delights in doing. God delights in being merciful. He doesn't want to judge people. He wants to forgive people, to be merciful to people. He's so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. So much so we're no longer spiritually dead, but we're alive in Christ. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. We were dead, but God gave us life. Out of his love for us, he gave us spiritual life. We who should have loved him and worshipped him and glorified him in all that we did, we who were his enemies, out of his love for us, he made us his friends. Jesus came like one of us. He took on our humanity, all except for our sinfulness. He came in the flesh. He died on the flesh, on the cross. But he was raised to life by the power of the Spirit. As our leader, if we are in Christ, his death becomes our death to sin. His life, his resurrection becomes ours. And when we trust in him, we have died to sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6. And when we trust in him, we are alive to God. Humanity has two leaders. Naturally, humanity has Adam as its prototype. And just in the same way that a manufacturer making whatever, whether it's a plastic toy, whether it's Uh, an electronic circuit they make the prototype and then everything else is a copy of it so too we are in a sense copies we have inherited that sinfulness of our spiritual forefather that's the downside of being a copy of a prototype but the good side of that is that we can switch our prototype to Christ and with Christ as our template as with Christ as our new spiritual head we become copies of him and when we place our faith in him we become sinless we become as righteous as he is 
Paul says to the Corinthians, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. We used, to, we used to sin because we were unrighteous. Now, in Christ, walking in the Spirit, we do not sin because we are righteous in Him. John tells us, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. As Christ is righteous, so also are we righteous in this world. That's why we can have confidence on the judgment day. Our sins will be inadmissible evidence because they belong to our old identity on that day. And when Christ was raised from the dead, you were also raised, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms because we are united to Christ. He raised us and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus, Paul tells us. Going back to Tom Branson in Downton Abbey, he is now seated upstairs with the upper class. I'm not promoting class division or anything, but I'm just using it as an illustration. He's no longer downstairs. That's where he belongs now. We belong with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. Where do we belong? When we are in God's presence, it's not as though we were there as imposters. It's not as though we were there just having let us in and nobody's realized that we shouldn't be there. When we come into God's presence as those who have trusted in Christ, it's because we belong there. We are seated in him in the heavenly places. That is where we belong now. And it's not because we deserve it. It's because he has given it to us graciously. His grace and his love and his mercy are so great that he doesn't treat us as to how we should ought to deserve things in ourselves but he treats us not by how we've responded to law under law he treats us under grace because of his mercy and grace and love towards us occasionally we 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 sin sometimes far too occasionally and if you've seen the film my fair lady you'll you'll remember that She's at the races and she's being very sophisticated and posh. But then as the horses come towards the, 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 the finishing line, her old nature comes out and she shouts out something in her old Cockney accent and she lets herself down. And sometimes we feel like that. But the difference is for her at that point, that was... That was no longer her real nature anymore. That was something which was alien to her. She was now an elegant, educated, sophisticated woman. And now when we sin, that's an aberration. That's not the true us. That's not the real us anymore. 
that's the old us coming out. That is not who we really are. Who we really are is those who are righteous in Christ. Why has God done this? God has done this to show us off as his masterpiece. When a lot of people think about heaven and hell, about salvation, about Christ on the cross, about forgiveness, we are the center of the story. It's that we have a problem. We're going to hell. We need to be saved. We need to avoid that. And God is there to come to our rescue. Uh, And we are the center of the story. And as much as that is important in our lives, we are not the main person in the story. The story is not all about us. The story is that God would be glorified. His purpose was that he would be glorified. In verse 7, So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of his grace and kindness towards us. We are his masterpiece, his workmanship. God saved us, not just that we would be saved, God saved us so that he would be glorified. So that the angels can look on and say, praise and give honor and praise to his name. We're the ones who receive salvation. But the, the bigger picture is that God is a saving God. He is a gracious God, a loving God. And in case we think that this is all down to what we have done, we are reminded that we're saved by grace, not by works. But we're saved for works. One of the big mistakes in Bible-based Christianity is that there is a contrast between works and faith. So much so that if, if Christians are doing lots of good works, they say, well, that, that's what people try to do to try and get right with God. People try and turn over a new leaf and stand before God in their own righteousness by their own works. And that doesn't work because our works are never good enough. So we're not saved. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. Works do not save. But they make the mistake of thinking the works then have no place. Works always had a place. Work, we should have been doing perfect works and we still need to do perfect works. God hasn't abandoned the need for obedience just because he has been gracious to us. He's been gracious to us so that we can be obedient. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. 
But we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So we can do the good works he planned for us long ago. Paul reminds us that by works of the law, by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We can't be right before God by taking done that, done that, done that. Everyone who came to Jesus, how must I get into to inherit eternal life? How can I get into heaven? Jesus says, well, try keeping the Ten Commandments. Try loving God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And as one man said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he says, yeah, do this and you will live. But in, ancient, in the ancient world, teachers used to assign their pupils uh, a task, not assuming, not presuming that they could actually finish it. Knowing that they wouldn't be able to even finish it, they set them a task so that their pupils would be able to, in the end, realize that they cannot finish that, that they're not able to do what they presumed they were able to do. So when Jesus says, do this and you will live, on the one hand, if the, if the person had been able to do it, he would, if he was able to be sinless, he would be right with God. But Jesus tells him, go and try this knowing that his intention was and when you find out that you failed and you can't do it, come back to me and I'll show you another way to be right with, with God through faith. God gives us the gift of grace. He gives us a new identity. He gives us a new spirit, a new righteousness, a new inheritance. And he gives us a new joy in our heart that we never had before. He enables us by the power of the Spirit to be able to not sin, to be able to have self-control, to be able to have love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. All these things that we ought to be, we can be if we simply humble ourselves and realize, I can't do it myself. And accept God's gift of grace through faith in Christ. When we sin, if we haven't trusted in Christ, that sin defines who we are. That sin defines our relationship with God under law. But if we have come to Christ, when we sin, that no longer defines us. What defines us is God's grace to us. What defines us is our identity in Christ. So remember, if you've come to Christ, you are loved. You are accepted. You are adopted into God's family. Your sin doesn't define your relationship with God anymore. But his grace and his mercy defines his relationship with you. If you haven't received God's grace yet, if you haven't turned back to him, if you're still in your sin, 
If you're still guilty before God, then simply turn to him. A simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Accept me into your family. And if we have prayed that, like the tax collector who went from the temple, Jesus tells us he went home justified. Right with God. Going to heaven immediately if he died no matter what. If we have already prayed that, if we have walked with the Lord, if we know him, then we can be joyful that that we are not imposters in God's presence. That that is actually where we belong. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Let's praise God for such great salvation, for such great mercy, for such great love lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. Let's not doubt, but let's be assured of his love and our acceptance before him. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we we can only get glimpses of how deep your love is for us. But we thank you. We thank you that you have sent your son to the, the cross to die. We thank you, Jesus, you went to the cross. We thank you, Father, that our relationship with you is not determined by how much we understand it, but it's determined by how much you understand it. Lord, we are accepted, even if we don't understand it fully. We are accepted by faith because of your grace and your love for us. Lord, we pray that we will be able to understand this, to take joy in this, And to thank you for your love and your grace towards us. We are new people in Christ Jesus. Lord, if we haven't done that yet, if we haven't turned back to you, humbled ourselves in our hearts before you, and placed our faith in you, Lord, we pray that we will do that now. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Forgive me. Lord, that prayer that is all we need to pray as we look to the cross, as we look to Christ. We thank you that you gave your one and only Son that whoever simply believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lord, help us, if we haven't done that already, to look to the cross and believe to place our faith in Christ. If we have already done that, Lord, we thank you for such great love and kindness and grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.